Yo, Eagles Nation, stand up. Yo, how'd Barkley put it? <laughs> Looking like another grease pole night in Philly. 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 Facts. Just a dude looking to become part of your Monday rituals. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to episode 12 of the Grease Paul Podcast. Appreciate you taking part. As always, you can follow the show on Instagram at Grease Paul Podcast. Find every previous episode, 1 through 11, and including this one, 1 through 12, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe, rate, and review on both. If you have already, appreciate you. If not, it would be appreciated. Episode 12, ladies and gentlemen, this should be a fun one. Hope you enjoyed your weekend. Uh, America Day was over the weekend, so uh, whatever... You know, whatever whatever that meant to you, hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you did so with an open mind. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. No need to get political. No need to get political. Until we touch on, uh, real quick, I know it's not a Redskins podcast, but I just want to uh, laugh at the situation the Redskins have found themselves in because they are in our division, so they're a rival. Uh, it, it, after being told for, you know, years and years by Dan Snyder, the asshole, that he would never, ever, ever change the name, when you got when when dollars are on the line, rich dudes are gonna listen. When Nike pulls all your merch off their website, when FedEx is going, Hey, we got the naming rights to your stadium, we know you want a new one. You know, maybe maybe look at that racist name of yours. You know? Switch it up a little bit. Uh A, you know, ethically, right thing to do. Uh, B, as somebody that hates the team, I think it's hilarious to watch the fan base now just cannibalize itself because there is now this, like, hey, okay, change the name. I don't give a shit. As long as we win, don't care mentality. And then there's, you know, Facebook comment sections are a motherfucker, man. They really are. It, it, it's such a such a – it's such a microcosm of where we're at in society now. But if you look, you have that group amongst Redskins fan base. And then you also have, you know, the, hey, you change the name. I'm, I'm, you lose me as a fan. Like, if I'm going to lose you as a fan, did I ever really have you to begin with? Right? That's the way I look at it. So, you know, as an Eagles fan on an Eagles podcast, just wanted to poke the bear a little bit with the Redskins fan base and kind of laugh at them for finding themselves in this predicament uh, after using a racial slur for their entire existence. So uh, that's what you get. Karma's a motherfucker. Uh, There you go, DC. And I'm curious, though, to see where it goes in terms of the, you know, the Cleveland Indians. The Indians obviously already changed the logo from Chief Wahoo to a boring-ass C. But, I mean, the C, you know, is far less offensive the Atlanta Braves, fuck them because they're in the Phillies division. Tomahawk chant, do they do anything with that? The Kansas City Chiefs. Haven't really heard anybody complain about those. But, you know, again, the Redskins have been under fire over over the years. And, I mean, given 
given where we're at now, what better time to change it, right? Can't be tone deaf, not in 2020. You, you got away with it for years, white-ass rich Dan Snyder. You can't, you can't be tone deaf now. You can't. If you do, you're going to lose a lot of dollars, and you're going to feel it in your bank account, which is really all he cares about, and it's sad. But that's corporate America in a nutshell. So to the meat and potatoes of the program here on episode 12, and I called an audible uh, late last night after finding out that uh, Jets rookie wide receiver Denzel Mims, he was the 59th pick, I believe, in this year's draft a couple months ago by uh, Harry Roseman's uh, protege, Joe Douglas, GM of the Jets. Uh, he came out in a, a Call of Duty lobby, for Christ's sake. That's where we're getting news now in 2020, boys and girls. A rookie-wide receiver's in a Call of Duty lobby, and he calls Philly a dirty-ass, trash-ass city. <laughs> and, I mean, look, man, it, it – I love the city, man. It's where I'm from. You know, if you're – if. It, uh, Yes, it can be. I had this conversation with uh, uh, somebody over at my brother-in-law's this weekend who had said, like, yeah, no, I've been there before. It's kind of like you could tell she didn't want to, like, offend me. And I'm like, that's a dump. Like, it, <laughs> you're fucking telling me anything I don't know. But, like, it's not, not every part, right? Like, if you go out to the burbs, you know what I mean? There's, you know, you don't have to be afraid for your life, right? But Germantown. You know what I mean? There's certain parts where if you go too far, you've gone too far. But that's any big city, right? But it's like, damn, man, you're and Denzel Mims. Is, he's, he's, yes, it's a dump, but it's my dump. You know? So it kind of goes, man. And this is a guy who I sat here and said last week that I kind of wish the birds would have drafted in the second round over that other guy we took that plays the same position as Carson Wentz. So now he's coming out. And he's saying shit like this. And, again, this is a guy who got drafted by the Jets. Did play in Jersey. Anybody who's – like, have you not been to Jersey yet? The team that drafted you. You want to talk about shitholes, dude? Denzel Mims, Jersey is the biggest shithole there is, just so you know. You can call Philly a dump. I'll give you that. It's my dump. It's our dump. But try Jersey where you're going to be playing. And see what a dump that is. You drive through. I heard it on, I can't remember the show years ago. And it's, you know, it's borderline offensive. But I heard the line, Jersey's so filthy that you drive through there. It's so polluted. You drive through Jersey and you get a lump on your breast. And, (laughs) I mean, I don't know, man. If you've never been there, maybe you don't know. But if you have, it's fairly accurate. So, after... Seeing these comments by Denzel Mims and kind of laughing to myself, wow, the irony there, a guy who's going to play in Jersey is calling Philly a dump. It kind of, it got the gears turning. That's why I decided to call an audible on this show. It's just, it's a, you know, it kind of reminded me of like a heel promo. You know what I mean? Wrestling, what you do. Okay, gears turn, light bulb goes off, boom. Let's go biggest heels in Eagles history here. That could be fun. To me, it would have been, you know, the other route I was going to go is probably more informative. But if you're, if you're a diehard, you already probably know. It would have been a fun conversation. But this is something that I, you know, it's different, man. Again, my goal here is to eventually kind of give you stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else or at least a spin on it. 
So I thought this was a cool way to spend episode 12. It's the 10 biggest heels in Eagles franchise history. Now, I want to differentiate between a heel and strictly hating a player. Like, I want to establish the criteria here. So this is not strictly like a most hated list, okay? That'll come at a later date, all right? There's plenty of hate to go around, right? And if that were the case, there'd be a few different names on this list. But the goal here is you, the criteria is you have to have been a part of the Eagles organization. That's, that's the heels, the criteria here. If, if this were a rival thing, no rivals. Because if this were a rival thing, the Dallas Cowboys would be number one all day. Right? No questions asked. Takes the fun out of it. So I figured biggest heels, and again, the heel, like when I think heel, and it could be because I grew up a wrestling fan, when I think the word heel, I think 96 bash at the beach. Hogan dropping the leg on Randy Savage, forming the NWO with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. If you're a wrestling fan, you know what I'm talking about if you grew up a wrestling fan. If you didn't grow up a wrestling fan, you don't give a shit, so I'm going to just stop at 96 bash at the beach, you know? But Ric Flair, Triple H, you know, with the sledgehammer, that's what I think of when I think of heels. Different than pure hatred. What a heel has done something to damage the fan base or, you know, just certain behaviors. It's different than hating a player just because he sucks. That's, that's different. For this list, I'm going to go straight up 10 biggest heels in Eagles history. And when putting this list together, and I hate the honorable mention thing is so gimmicky, but I felt the need to do it here just because it was, I was narrowing this list down. It was almost impossible to keep this guy off, but I couldn't eliminate any of the other guys either. So I went the honorable mention route with Byron Maxwell, and I'm going to keep it short, much like his tenure in Philly. Nomdi 2.0, fuck that guy. So Byron Maxwell, honorable mention, got him the hell out of the way. Now we go on to the countdown proper. And again, as you listen to this list, feel free to hit me up. What is your, uh, give me your ideas, heels, biggest heels. When you think heels, if you're a wrestling fan, particularly Eagles history, what do you got? Hit me up at Greasepole Podcast on Instagram. Compare list with the one that's coming up. Let's see where we agree. Let's see where we disagree. Number 10, Todd Pinkston. Alligator arms. <laughs> I could stop there. Just, just Mr. Alligator arms. And, you know, Pinkston, he was a high second-round pick uh, out of Southern Miss in the 2000 draft. This guy was built like a string bean. He was listed at uh, 6'3", 180 pounds. That was his official listed weight. You know, and they, they tend to inflate teams in any sport, I think, inflate kind of the numbers. They'll add a couple pounds on you, add an inch or two. That's what he was listed at, 6'3", 180. But he weighed in at 167 pounds at the time of the draft. Guy's built like a fucking string bean. Imagine that, 6'3", 167 pounds. If you Google Todd Pinkston, it makes sense now if you can't remember him. Dude never had over 800 yards receiving. Best year was 2002 put up some I think like 60 receptions just under 800 yards I think like 798 seven touchdowns he was the biggest knock on him was if you say Todd Pinkston to an Eagles fan 
there's one play in particular they remember. He was so reluctant to run routes in traffic. So reluctant. Didn't want any smoke whatsoever to Todd Pinkston as a high second-round pick. He famously once gave up, just gave up on a pass from Donovan McNabb against the Redskins. I think it was 2004 on Monday Night Football. Uh, he ran – Pinkston ran a go route. McNabb throws just an easily, easily catchable ball, probably about 50 yards downfield. And as the safety, you can see the Redskins safety kind of close in on Pinkston a little bit, and he just pulls up, doesn't even attempt to catch the ball. <laughs> just pulls up, wanted no action whatsoever, zero effort. Dude just straight up quit on the play in an easily catchable ball. If you're unfamiliar with this player, can't remember it, I kind of I looked it up as I was putting this list together just for shits and giggles, kind of relive it. When you type Todd Pinkston, into the search engine on YouTube, the first suggestion that comes up is Todd Pinkston scared. <laughs> That's all you need to know about number 10 on our biggest or my biggest heel list of all time in Eagles franchise history. Number nine, Jason Babin. Jason Babin. I once wasted $5 on his jersey on sale at Modell's. <laughs> No idea why I did that. I would rather give that $5 to charity or bought a box of Girl Scout cookies with it. You know? But, hey, you know, I was young. Jersey was on sale. Five bucks. Why not, right? Everybody runs out of toilet paper once in a while. Coronavirus. So he signed with the Birds. Uh, it was technically his second tenure uh, in Philly in 2011. He went to the Pro Bowl the previous year with Tennessee. He, he comes to Philly, and he's reunited with – uh, former Titans defensive line coach Jim Washburn, who was also a dick and a piece of shit. Nobody liked Jim Washburn except for, you guessed it, number nine, Jason Babin on our list. Babin finished third in the NFL in sacks in 2011. He had 18. The only two guys that finished ahead of him were Jared Allen with 22 that year and DeMarcus Ware. I think he had somewhere around 19 and a half. But the difference between Babin and those two is that all Jason Babin cared about is just padding his own stats. That's all he cared about. He wasn't interested in being effective against the run. He thought the hell with being a complete player. They want sacks, QB pressures. That's how I get paid. If I can inflate my sack numbers, I can parlay this into a bigger contract. And he basically admitted it. That was his goal. Just cared about sacks, which again – End of the day, that's your job as an edge rusher. You know what I mean? But go go watch him. Go watch him on run plays. Just did no interest whatsoever from Jason Batman. Just an absolute piece of shit. Only cared about his own stat line. So he comes in at number nine on our list of heels in Eagles history. Number eight. Really, he should be higher now that I think about this. But number eight, Riley Cooper. Just the, the the drop passes, the one against the Saints in the 2014 wild card, the Kenny Chesney concert incident, just out there letting them rip, you know? Surviving that Kenny Chesney concert incident while Chip Kelly went on to cut and trade players that were far better than Riley Cooper ever was. And Riley Cooper stays and gets a fucking extension after using a racial slur on tape at a Kenny Chesney concert. How does this happen? 
How? <laughs> Jesus. Karma's caught up with Chip Kelly, though, plenty. So he comes in at number eight on this list, does racist-ass Riley Cooper. Number seven, Fireman Dan, Danny Watkins. 23rd pick in the 2011 draft, and the Birds took a 26-year-old Canadian firefighter out of Baylor. That's really all you need to know about Danny Watkins. If you're listening to an Eagles podcast, you already know enough about Danny Watkins. All I got to do is drop your name in his lap, and you're immediately <laughs> given PTSD, flashbacks, bad trips, the whole nine. Number seven on our list, Danny Watkins. Number six, DeMarco Murray. Now, to me, this this entire how DeMarco Murray became a Philadelphia Eagle, this entire shitstorm, it just sums up the Chip Kelly tenure perfectly. Okay? So Chip Kelly gets personnel control, trades LaShawn McCoy, franchise all-time leading rusher to Buffalo for Kiko Alonso because Oregon. Then Frank Gore reportedly signed with the Eagles, but then has second thoughts and signed with the Colts. Remember that? So Frank Gore, no, nah, I'm going to sign. Now nah, I'll go to Indy. Okay, now you're left with nothing. Ryan Matthews then, formerly of San Diego, was brought in on a three-year deal. But the biggest free agent running back was still out there that year, DeMarco Murray. He was fresh off just... I mean, look, man, let's be honest. He killed it in Dallas. Coming fresh off of that tenure, free agent, he was still there. Frank Gore goes to Indy. Ryan Matthews is here, but it's not enough, right? Ryan Matthews had some injury stuff. You want a workhorse. So why not reunite DeMarco Murray with then-Eagles quarterback, then-new Eagles quarterback, and DeMarco Murray's college teammate at Oklahoma, baggy-sleeve-ass Sam Bradford. They give him $42 million over five years to DeMarco Murray. And his performance against Week 2 that year against Dallas was absolutely horrendous. I think he got like 13 yards. It was just awful. Total abortion. Terrible. Against his former team. That was when you knew, okay. This is, this is not going to be a fun ride this year. You know, but what I remember about DeMarco Murray, man, it, it, he was never, he wasn't a good fit. He wasn't a good fit in Chip Kelly's offense. He was, DeMarco Murray was more of a downhill runner. You know what I mean? He wasn't, he, he wasn't served. Chip Kelly's offense was strictly a shotgun offense. So DeMarco Murray, the majority of the time, is having to run laterally. He's not, he's not able to gather any steam downhill like a bowling ball and be his best, most effective self. You know what I mean? That he wasn't Dallas. It was almost like Chip Kelly just we, – we just signed him away just so Dallas couldn't have him. <laughs> you know? Great fucking strategy. You know? So after beating – remember there was the upset that year Birds go into New England. It was a highlight, the only good part of that year, where the Eagles go to Foxborough and they beat the Patriots. 
upset. DeMarco Murray has a conversation with Jeff Laurie on the plane ride back to Philly to discuss his role in the offense. So this dude is going the owner, going to the owner, I'm sorry, to bitch about <laughs> his role in the offense behind the coach's back. Even if the coach is a dumb fuck, it, the optics are terrible. He goes to the owner on a plane ride to complain about his role in the offense. He's the owner. Jeff Lurie's not a meddling owner. I understand that DeMarco was used to that, used to a meddling owner with Plastic Man Jerry down in Dallas. That's not the way Jeff Lurie gets down. So you had that incident. He had only two games in one year in Philly with over 20 carries, ended the season with about 700 yards, six touchdowns. His value after that season, mind you, after signing a five-year, $42 million contract, his value had been shot to such a degree that when Howie Roseman got personnel control back, he shipped Murray and a fourth-round pick and a fourth-round pick to the Titans to get their fourth-round pick. So, hey, let's swap fours, and I'll give you this guy. They didn't even just take DeMarco Murray for the fourth round. They said, nah, fuck that. We want your fourth-rounder, too, so we're not sans a fourth-round pick here. Give us your fourth-round pick. We'll swap, and then we'll take the guy off your hands. So there you go. It just never was a good fit, man. Always felt dirty, never felt right. Just just grimy. Summed up the Chip Kelly era perfectly. Right there was DeMarco Murray's tenure in Philadelphia. At number five, taking it back here a little bit as we get into our top five biggest heels in Eagles franchise history, I'm going to go with an owner here, Norman Brayman at number five. This is a guy, now, the circumstances, so this, the previous, the owner before Norman Brayman, right, Leonard Tose, he was forced basically to sell the team because he lost his fortune as a result of alcohol, uh, alcoholism, also had a gambling addiction. So in 1985, he sold the team to Brayman for $65 million. Brayman made his bones through car sales, collecting art. That's how he uh, obtained his fortune, more so through selling vehicles. And Brayman's a guy that was from Westchester, PA, a graduate of Temple. But it got to a point, once he became a billionaire down in Miami with his cars, he didn't give a shit about padding his own pockets. That's all he cared about. Make myself richer. He did not, if the team was successful on the field, whether they were or not, he did not care. As long as they made him money. That's all Norman Brayman cared about. Rarely ever went to the city of Philadelphia. Buddy Ryan, former Eagles head coach, once referred to him as the man in France. This is a guy whose legacy will always be allowing Reggie White to walk in free agency and go to Green Bay. You know, not only did he just let him leave, let him walk away to the Packers, but he took shots at Reggie White's faith in the process because that's awesome. He said Reggie may be devout, but his first love is the almighty dollar. <laughs> Scumbag. And that, thank Christ, Jeff Laurie bought the team from Norman Brayman. Because if not, yeah, good, good luck with that guy long term. Especially in the era. Imagine what, what, what free agency is now. 
Imagine having an owner like that. Welcome to the life of a Cincinnati Bengals fan. Honestly. Mom and pop shop, make money. We don't care whether it's wins or losses or not on the field. That's how Norman Brayman was. That's why he cracks a top five on my heel list. Number four. It was really hard. Four and three I spent an amount of time that I don't care to admit deciding which to put where between three or four. And then I decided it's really not that big of a difference. This one accomplished less, so I'll just give him the higher spot. At number four, Freddie Mitchell. And, uh, you know, if Fred X was as good as he thought he was, half as good, half as good as he believed he was in his mind, he wouldn't be on this list. Hell, he'd be a Hall of Famer. He'd have his number retired if he was half as good as he thought he was. He was a consensus All-American at UCLA. First-round pick by the Eagles in 2001, 25th overall. But then he gets there, can't learn the playbook. Only thing that, the only thing that was worth the shit that he did in his entire career was 4th and 26. That's it, against the Packers. Don't need to elaborate. You know what 4th and 26 is. Only thing he did. And it honestly sucks knowing the the significance that that moment has in this team's history that a different player didn't make that play. Because it sucks. Because anytime you say anything bad about Freddie Mitchell, certain people go, yeah, but 4th and 26, okay. But what about the fact that he was the only player ever? We know how Bill Belichick is, right? I'm on a Cincinnati. He's the only player to have ever gotten an actual soundbite out of Bill Belichick leading up to Super Bowl Thirty Nine. Belichick said of Fred X, all he does is talk. He's terrible, and you can print that. I was happy when he was in the game. That is coming from Bill Belichick, who tells you I'm on to Cincinnati 500 times, intentionally doesn't say shit, and he's willing to put his name on a quote like that <laughs> about a player. That tells you, for the 26 or not, how bad Freddie Mitchell was. Just awful. Number three, Terrell Owens. And, <clears throat> my God, what a, what a bipolar experience this was. Because I remember it was it, – finally McNabb had a legitimate number one receiver and it paid off huge. Right? This is a guy – I mean, we opened up the countdown with him. Todd Pinkston, that was his number one receiver for years – James Thrash, Nay Brown, Torrance Small, these are the guys McNabb had to work with. Now he gets T.O. And it's the Eagles offense exploded. And this was during the Jim Johnson defensive era. Now you find out, holy shit, we can score points too? With this defense? Yes. Super Bowl aspirations. Unfortunately, he got injured that December against Dallas by Roy Williams in that play that made horse collar tackles illegal. But through 14 games that year, T.O. put up 1,200 yards and 14 touchdowns through 14 games. That's the impact he had. Didn't end up playing another snap after that game. Didn't play another snap until uh, Super Bowl 39. And it's not even, it's not even debatable. In terms of the Eagles – he was the best player on the field for the Birds 
the night of Super Bowl 39. Not even close. Nine catches, 122 yards on one freaking leg. One leg. Gutsy-ass performance. Whether you like him or not, even still to this day, the way everything ended, still hats off to T.O. for that performance because he was the only one on the field that looked like he gave a shit. You know, the following year, or the following season, excuse me, the same year, following, you know, season, a couple months later, 2005 is when, you know, the stuff really hit the fan. So he had signed, I think it was a seven-year, $49 million contract. The contract was backloaded, though. And the guaranteed salary he had was less than the the annual average for top-end receivers. So with the help of his agent, Diva Drew Rosenhaus, he threatened to hold out, but ended up reporting to camp on time. Yet, that's when the shenanigans started to ensue. He reportedly, there was an incident where he wore like a Michael Irvin jersey on the team's plane after a loss to Dallas. Really? Had an argument with Hugh Douglas, who was a leader of the team at the time, said on ESPN that the Eagles would be in a better situation if they had Brett Favre instead of McNabb. So he got suspended by the Eagles for conduct detrimental. Andy Reid demands T.O. make a public apology to McNabb. He balks. Andy Reid says, okay, you're done. We're going to deactivate your ass for the remainder of the season. Then he was released after the 2005 season and went on to sign with Dallas. <laughs> so there you go. And again, it was it just such a the bipolar express, man, with T.O., being so happy when he finally, McNabb, got a number one receiver. You know, the cover of ESPN NFL 2K5 for PS2 back in the day, man. Yay, awesome. Super Bowl contender. And then <laughs> nuke. That's why he lands at number three on the list. Number two, the runner-up for the silver medal heel, if you will, Namdi Asamoah. And uh, that was the dream team offseason, right, Vince Young? And he was – Namdi was the piece, like, I, I desperately – every Eagles fan desperately wanted this guy. Desperately. Namdi was – he was a true shutdown corner for several years in Oakland. Three-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro. He hit free agency that year, and he was the top free agent on the market across the board, any position. Hung out there for a little bit, and the Eagles pulled it off. Five-year, $60 million deal with $25 million guaranteed. And I remember everybody, I think, kind of has like a – or at least used to – uh, like a jersey hookup. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's still a thing. I used to have a jersey guy, and uh, he lived out in Arizona. And I remember texting him as soon as Asamoah signed, like, hey, my next paycheck, the moment you get the Asamoah jerseys, send me one. Done. You know what I mean? And I remember, like, that, the opening, I can't remember who we played week one that year. But I remember wearing that jersey to, like, Wawa to make a beer run. You know what I mean? Week one, everybody – Sunday, everybody has their gear on anyway. You know what I mean? But, like, there's – I think there's, like, a pride to being the first person. At 32, maybe not so much now, but at the time I was, like, 23-ish, you know, 10 years ago. I think there's, like, a pride in being, when you're that age, like, 
Oh, nobody else has seen the Nobby jersey in person yet. I'm the first motherfucker with one. You know, like you wear it, go get beer, get your pregame stuff, yada, yada. Everybody's got the gear on. You talk shit. It was like, man, I happened to bump into another Eagles fan. They were like, yo, fuck yeah. It was the only time I wore that jersey. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't even know if it's, I might have thrown it away. I don't think it's in the back of my closet now since I've moved a couple times since. I, that, that thing is in pristine condition. I should, I should give it a goodwill if I still have it. I don't think I do, though. But so, yeah, all, all that hype, uh, only to go 12 and 20 during his two years in Philly. And you can't put that solely on him as a corner, but it's less than ideal as a record when you're supposed to only be one piece away as a team. And Nobby was supposed to be that final piece. $25 million to be named a Pro Bowl alternate, an alternate in 2012, long after the Pro Bowl, stop meaning anything. If you can rack them up, you know, cool, cool, whatever. But if you just get one, especially if you're an alternate, who cares? It's a popcorn fart. $25 million for that. I mean, when I think free agency bus personally, it's it's him and Albert Hainsworth. Arguably, Nnamdi Asamoah is arguably the biggest free agency bust in the history of free agency, aside from Albert Hainsworth. Less than ideal category to be in, you know what I mean? Number one on the list, and and two and one were kind of kind of locks for me going into this thing. Number one was a uh, just a, a stone cold lock as soon as this idea came to me, uh, and I think most Eagles fans would agree. Number one's Chip Kelly. Biggest heel all-time, Eagles history. Number one, top of the list, Chip Kelly, who was, at the time, the shiny new college coach de jour, who got chosen over Bruce Arians. And although Chip didn't give a shit about defense, his fast-forward offense went 10-6 and six his first year, winning the NFC East. All right, not bad. Maybe I'll buy in a little bit, right? Then you finish 10-6 and six again the following year in 2014. Even with huge injuries to Nick Foles and D'Amico Ryans. Key players. You fail to make the playoffs, but you, you go 10-6 and six with those injuries. Okay. Uh. Then that offseason, Chip Kelly got into a pissing contest with Howie Roseman over personnel control. Jeff Lurie... Uh, acquiesced and allowed Chip Kelly to shop for the groceries. And what followed was just a fiasco of foolishness in terms of transactions. The first of which, again, being that LaShawn McCoy to Buffalo deal for Kiko Alonso, brought into Marco Murray, who we talked about earlier. The one that really pissed me off, Nick Foles to St. Louis for Sam Bradford. Christ. Then leading up to his draft where he's got personnel control. His quarterback from college at Oregon that he recruited, Marcus Mariota, is now coming out in the draft. It's him and Jameis Winston. They're going to go 1-2. Tampa's right there at 1. Tennessee's number 2. Winston was the presumptive number 1 pick. So there's all these conversations with the birds in Tennessee. And I have never been that 
damn nervous going into a draft in my life because I didn't want Mariota. I didn't like him or Jameis. Now, I'm not saying I'm, like, fucking genius here because the quarterback I kind of liked that year was Bryce Petty out of Baylor, and he didn't do a damn thing, you know? So I'm not, like, patting myself on the back here. But didn't want Mariota, man. I didn't want Chip offering ownership to every Wawa and Delco to the Titans for his boy. So he makes an offer to Tennessee, and this is the package that he offered to move up from the 20th pick to the second pick to hopefully take Marcus Mariota. This was the package that was offered. The first-round pick in 2015, which was the 20th pick overall, as we just said, that pick ended up being Nelson Aguilar, which, you know, again, get it, couldn't catch clap in a whorehouse, much like Jordan Matthews. But unlike Jordan Matthews, Nelson Aguilar was a pretty big contributor to the offense the Super Bowl year. So at the end of the day, you could say that that pick, Nelson Aguilar played a part in Super Bowl 52. Undisputed, no questions asked. So he offered them a first-round pick, first pick in 2015, also offered their second-round pick in 2015, the 47th overall pick, which ended up being Eric Rowe, quarterback out of Utah. Eh, get him the hell out of here. He bounced around, played with New England, won two Super Bowls there, but now he's with Miami. He's just – he's a dude. You know what I mean? He didn't do nothing for us. Get him the hell out of here. Still, nonetheless, first and second-round pick that year. First-round pick the following year in 2016, which ended up being Carson frickin' Wentz. Didn't stop there. Also offered any quarterback, which would have been, come on, Sam Bradford, who they would have taken, and any defensive player, which would have been Fletcher Cox, who all he is is the most dominant defensive interior defensive lineman in the NFL outside of Aaron Donald. So, again, first-round pick, second-round pick in 2015, 2016 first-round pick, Sam Bradford, Fletcher Cox. That's what he offered Tennessee. Thank the fuck Christ the Titans are dumb as hell and didn't accept the trade. Because had they accepted that trade, Super Bowl 52 does not happen. That, that's why Chip Kelly is number one on this list. Now, again, Tennessee didn't take the deal. Thank God. The team imploded. And I've been alive since 1988. I'm 32 now. I can't do the math off the top of my head how old I was in 2015. I don't know, 28-ish, 27. Don't know. But up to that point, and still to this day at 32, that is the it's the single most difficult season in my lifetime I've ever experienced as an Eagles fan. Not even close. And there's been some frustrating fucking seasons. A lot. A handful. So he goes 6-9. and nine. The team just, it looks, it's a disaster. It's a tire fire. Jeff Lurie fires him before the last game of the regular season against the Giants. Pat Shermer is the interim head coach for that game. Wins it, the Birds finish 7-9. and nine. The rest, as they say, is history. Now, again, I just, I think when you consider the fact that this guy put a trade package together for one dude because Oregon that it's it's that these draft day trades man this is why you can't all the cincinnati oh are they going to trade the first overall pick that you got to be really careful man because team if you give all this stuff away man it, it 
the fate of this team was in the hands of the Tennessee Titans, and that is fucking frightening to think about, that that package was offered to Tennessee. And all Tennessee had to do was go, okay, let's do it. Super Bowl 52 doesn't happen. All of us are sitting here banging our heads up against the wall. Still, there's no Jason Jason Kelsey Mummers promo. Doug Peterson doesn't get hired because they likely, if, if Chip moves up to draft Mariota, Jeff Lurie's going to give him a couple years to develop him, right? Doug Peterson doesn't happen. The Philly special doesn't happen. None of it, the underdog mask, Chris Long and Bo Allen, none of that happens. 38-7 against Minnesota, none of it. Super Bowl 52 still happens, but it's not the Eagles. Bring Lombardi back to Philly. If Chip Kelly's trade is accepted, that is why undisputed top heel of all time. He is the Ric Flair of uh, of the Eagles fan base. Bottom line. Curious to see if you have a different opinion. Again, hit me up at Greasepole Podcast on Instagram. Do you agree with the list? Curious to, uh, to get your opinion again. Let's go ahead and recap it <clears throat> real quick as I clear the phlegm right into the microphone. That's hot. So the 10 biggest heels in Eagles franchise history. Number 10. Todd Pinkston, number nine, Jason Babin, number eight, racist Riley Cooper, number seven, fireman Danny Watkins, number six, DeMarco Murray, number five, Norman Brayman, number four, Fred X, number three, T.O., number two, Namdi Asamoah, and number one, Chip Kelly, who dropped a nuke in the middle of a locker room. So curious to see your list. What do you think? Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Hit me up, as always, at Greasepole Podcast on Instagram. Hit subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have not already, curious to get your list. It's always fun to do off-the-beaten-pass stuff like this. Plus, it correlates to wrestling, and when you grow up a wrestling fan, anything related to wrestling is fun. And any time I can casually name-drop 1996 Bash at the Beach into the middle of an Eagles podcast, I'm going to consider it a win. Hopefully you do, too. So, even if you don't, I'll try to win next time. As episode 13 happens, one of my favorite numbers as a, uh, as a horror movie snob and a slasher movie fan and a, a, a Jason guy, Friday the 13th nerd as it compares to the, uh, the big three slasher slasher guys. I don't want to go on a tangent here, but just suffice it to say, 13 is one of my favorite numbers. So, if I didn't win this time, look forward to doing it next Monday on episode 13. Appreciate you being here for the ride. See you next time. As always, go birds. Yo, how'd Barkley put it? <laughs> Looking like another grease pole night in Philly. 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 Philly.